Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dan Allender, and I trust that part one was something that uh, stimulated your mind and heart. So Dan is the author of over 20 books, including The Wounded Heart, Bold Love, The Cry of the Soul, Intimate Allies, To Be Told, and many, many more. Uh, Dan and Tremper Longman, his longtime friend and his collaborator on several books, uh, have written books for a number of years. And a book that I want to uh, let people know about that perhaps is one of Dan's lesser-known books in certain circles, is simply called God Loves Sex. And Tremper is one of the foremost Old Testament scholars, and Dan is a theologian and psychologist. That intersection of thinking and scholarship uh, leads to, in that book and others, uh, some really, really rich material. It's a, it's a fast and easy-to-read book because it's, it's not only their teaching, but it's woven into the narrative of uh, actual stories. So it's kind of part uh, fictional accounts and the teaching that's there. So if you want to learn more about Dan, you can go to the Seattle School.edu, and that's the graduate training program that Dan uh, co-founded, and uh, students can earn uh, master's degrees in theology and culture, in professional counseling, master of divinity, and other things. So that's the seattleschool.edu. You can also go to the allendercenter.org, and the Allender Center is a nonprofit organization that Dan founded uh, to be able to take his teaching and message and to train not only graduate students but lay people in uh, the art of hearing and understanding story and walking with people that are seeking healing and wholeness and restoration. So uh, here we go with part two. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did talking with him. Can we go back to this idea of uh, dealing with our wounds from our mother. And um, last year at the Restoration of the Heart Conference that you did with your buddy John Eldridge, um, you spoke pretty vulnerably, well, not pretty, very vulnerably, uh, about 
your relationship with your mother and the wounds. And I heard you speak about some of that uh, 29, 25, 20 yeah. years ago. And, and yet you had gone to a whole new level in your own life of understanding that. So for the man who is kind of on the edges of dealing with their story, can you talk a little bit about your process of uh, what you've had to do to deal with that relationship and how that's affected you today? Yeah, and let me start by saying, uh, my mom died this last March. uh, And it it was, as all death, it, it is an aberration and a violation of what God intended. So in that sense, there's always a sense of something is wrong in death itself. Uh, but where my mom and I had come to be, um, it, it was, once that said, it can also be said it was a good death, um, a death in which um, by the the finish of my mom's life, there was much that we had talked through, much that we had engaged, a whole lot that was left for only what eternity can enable the two of us to be able to engage. So I'm not wanting to overstate it, but I, I was able to deeply grieve and honor uh, and let go and surrender um, my very deeply broken mom. And to name a sentence or two about that relationship, um, my, my mom uh, depended upon me as her solace, uh, her source of, of strength, of um, I, I was her confidant. Uh, in many ways, I was her lover, um, far more so than what uh, was true with regard to my stepfather. Yes. So the, the reality of being a what I refer to and others refer to as a triangulated relationship. I was in an intimate bond in which I was more her surrogate spouse than I was her son. Created massive complications, particularly given that my mom fits if our audience has a sense of what I'm saying without going into great detail. She she fit very well the term borderline personality disorder, um, but without specifics of that to say she was highly seductive. Um, in some ways, she was a very young little girl, a uh, very sexualized little girl, and on the other hand, uh, could be. Uh, brutal, cruel, uh, and deeply distancing. So, and that could all be in two minutes. The nature of that kind of unpredictability of arousal, uh, of punitive violence, but also of weeping that requires me to hold her and and soothe her and comfort her. Uh, Let's just say that there's a whole lot of people hearing this who would say, oh, my God, that sounds awful. It's nothing like my mom. And that's part of the complication of my story. Right. Story has a lot of extremity in many areas. The reality, however, is that all of us are, are in a war of intimacy and individuation. I mean, just to put it in those blunt terms, the more intimate we are with others, the more we seem to give up individuation. And what I mean by individuation is the capacity to choose and be who you are. But the more we choose that, then there's the price, on the other hand, of a loss of of connectedness. So, you know, you can be who your mom wants you to be and be pretty close to her, but you lost your soul. You gained your soul, but you lost your mom. So that that's the tension I was in. 
at a very volatile level pretty much every second, let alone minute. Most people are at least hour today, uh, so in that sense, they're at a different level of uh, of extremity. But but in that, uh, the weight of pressure of bearing her soul, and the sense of what do I do with the amount of arousal and need I feel for her, she feels for me, parallels. Oh my goodness, to the nth degree, the effects of sexual abuse, grooming. Uh, touch, uh, relational engagement that feels powerful and yet also nauseating. All that's going on. And, you know, for me, being able to go, oh my gosh, in, in some ways, I can say with incredible integrity, I have seldom ever struggled with pornography. Um, and, and people kind of come back and said, but you, you're, you say you're sexually broken. You don't struggle with pornography. And the answer is, no, not much, because, uh, you know, as an 11, 12-year-old boy, my mother took me first to a, a, a strip club called the Moulin Rouge and to far darker strip clubs than that. Uh, and I saw my mother in various stages of undress through most of my life. I remember hooking and unhooking her bras as a seven, eight-year-old boy. Um, in that sense, pornography always provoked in me a sense of being erotically arrayed in the presence of my mother. So, I, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to say that. But on the other hand, she has always been a kind of prophylactic against the power of a visual eroticism. So as you begin to name what's the nature of the relationship and how did sexuality get played out? Uh, I always go back to this core assumption, unless there was true love between your mother and father, true love, meaning true delight, true honor, and the capacity um, to be restored to one another when there was failure. Unless there was love, then you can almost be assured there was a drainage uh, of some uh, of the war with intimacy on you as a child, or at least someone in your family as a child. Uh, so the issue of triangulation is huge across the border in most in most families, because most families do not have a mother, father, a husband, wife, who love one another with true delight, honor, and great capacity for restoring rupture. So if all that's accurate, then we go back to that fundamental point that we are at war with the core first woman in our lives. And that's been an ongoing process for you. Thank you for sharing all that, by the way. Um, that wasn't one therapy session. That wasn't reading your own book and some, <laughs> somehow, you know, figuring it all out. That is a, that is a process of, uh, tell me what that process has been like over what span of time. Well, uh, I, I would say minimally, uh, I probably didn't even begin to address some of the implications of this until I first met Larry Crabb back in about 1975, 76. Um, but yet the rage and then the intimate resolution of that rage with my mom. I mean, it didn't take a lot to open the door to the reality that 
this is a pretty screwed up relationship. Uh, but then to actually take that and to say it shaped how you engaged women, that took a lot longer. But I looked at the track record of my very broken sexual history with women, and it wasn't it didn't take a lot of labor to basically take that one little flashlight and begin to go, oh, my goodness. What heartache got lived out here? What violence got lived out here? Uh, but then the harder work, even though it sounds so uh, one level pathetic, was uh, it, it actually shapes something of your inner world. Yes. It actually shapes something of your own identity, your sense of who you are in the world. It actually shaped how you engage God. I mean, that feels... Like, um, I, I don't, I, I haven't even looked to see what day it is. This is November, isn't it? Uh, sometime in November. <laughs> November uh, 3rd. Yeah, well. 20, uh, 2023. Uh, if, if, if it is 2023, <laughs> I just woke up from a long nap. Uh, but it's today. It's still affecting who I am in a way in which my heart cries out, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May there be, and there will be, one day, full, complete, glorious restoration. So that framework uh, is an evolving, uh, and, and put in a little bit more technical terms, it's an evolving hermeneutic. It's an evolving way of reading oneself. And hermeneutics, as you know, is the study of how we read, how we study what we're reading. And that process of going um, you know, as, as my daughters are, two of them are now in their 30s, uh, conversations we're having now, you know, decades later about me as a father of them as young teenagers and teenagers. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. It is a humbling gift <clears throat> to have children who are articulate and honest uh, uh, about the reality of how the shadow of my mother played out even in my fathering of my children. One can be suffused in shame uh, or one can somehow be immersed uh, in, in the goodness of what it means to be forgiven. But in being forgiven, we don't erase the harm. We come to engage it with new eyes and a far more tender heart. So I want to just summarize what I hear you saying, maybe to address the question I'm imagining somebody might be asking, especially a man who's dealing with um, pornography or uh, sexual sin or some kind of sexual brokenness that's hidden or that maybe has just come out and they're not sure they want to plunge into this pool. You know, they just want to bounce their eyes and get more accountability. Yep. Um, why bother? And what I'm hearing is, uh, that our story that's broken, that initial first relationship with the woman, our mother, all the ways that that plays out, as well as all of the other wounding that comes to us in life and all of the warfare and all the lies, that if we don't deal with that, um, we will be diminished and inhibited in our capacity to flourish as we were meant to and to be able to, let me use a very evangelical term, glorify God and receive love from God and to live beloved and to, to, to be able to have our soul rest. Amen to amen. Uh, if we can just 
say it as well as what you just put words to. Um, I, I don't want to have to grow any more than to be able to make my world work. Uh, but when I realize my world's not going to work if I'm as mature as Jesus, because <laughs> his world did not work as we would normally use that phrase. No one was more mature, uh, and he still uh, is despised uh, and provokes rage uh, and literally goes to the cross. Yes, there's a redemptive purpose, but it, the way he loved prior to that called forth something from others that uh, simply goes beyond what, what any of us feel is reasonable uh, or applicable to, to, to living a so-called real life. So if that's, if that's accurate, then uh, we're, we're bound. We're stuck and we're bound uh, with, with the fact that we were meant for more. I, I love that, that we are meant for more. <clears throat> Last year, Dan, you wrote uh, a new book. You have been a prolific author, author, and 30 years ago you wrote The Wounded Heart, and the book profoundly uh, touched me and helped me heal. But you wrote last year, Healing the Wounded Heart. And I regularly recommend that book, uh, even to, to uh, men who have not been sexually abused in their traditional understanding of, I've not been molested, etc. But the book is so helpful to understand sexual brokenness. But why, why did you write not just an updated version of The Wounded Heart, but a whole new book on healing sexual abuse? Well, it, it, we know that in many ways, the life of our lives uh, is our wives. Uh, and Becky was the one who said to me, you're the one who has been teaching for 25 years material that isn't is not uh, fully uh, adumbrated in, in the wounded heart. Why don't you write a 25 year retrospective? Uh, and I I just didn't I just didn't want to do it. It was like that that book's fine the way it is and yeah there's other material but she she was kind and and, and relentless uh and basically said you you have changed uh with regard to your understanding of warfare. That alone would be the basis uh to encapsulate uh, new material. Uh and she said as well you know, the neurobiology of, of abuse is much more clear than it was when I began writing in the mid 80s. So with all that, yeah, I, I eventually relented to her wisdom, which uh, probably one of the great errors of my life is even questioning for a moment for <laughs> wisdom. Uh, but I do so over a recent couch we bought. Uh, and uh, you know, the 25 year old couch we had seemed like, look, we probably only had another 10 or 15 years on, on the <laughs> earth. Why do we need another one? Uh, but uh, having purchased uh, a new couch uh, and uh, written a, a, a new book, I, I will say seldom is my wife wrong. <laughs> What's the big idea that you'd want someone to get from reading Healing the Wounded Heart, a man or woman? And by the way, you wrote a chapter just for men in sexual abuse. There's so little written about men in sexual abuse. Thank you for including that. But what would you want somebody to take away? Well, that our brains need to be honored. Um, and that uh, when we address the issues of our trauma, 
to ignore that trauma, uh, even trauma of our own shame, meaning our, my own sin creates trauma for me. Uh, and, and that trauma doesn't excuse, uh, doesn't become a justification for sin, but it has to be taken into account in the restorative process. So to understand what trauma trauma of having been abused or the trauma of my own harm of myself and others needs to be addressed. Uh, that to me is a very important chapter, particularly how trauma affects our body and our health. So I think that's one key issue. Certainly, thank you for mentioning about men. Uh, that That's a very important section and, and was a critique literally within months of the publication of The Wounded Heart back in 1988. And that was, you know, you don't deal with men. And it's like, well, at that time, I had not worked with many men, uh, but what I had found to be fairly consistently true with regard to men and women and abuse had enough parallel. But no, there are crucial things that need to be said uniquely for men. But I, I think maybe the, the thing that I'm, I'm most desirous for people to get from that uh, is the reality that evil intends from the harm of abuse to create certain kinds of internal and external wars. And to the degree that we do not see and name the work of evil, we are far more susceptible uh, to the uh, continuation of that harm. So bringing that back uh, into conversation, uh, well, bringing that into conversation, uh, I think is a very important part of the book. In the, uh, the groups and weekends that we do for men at Restoring the Soul, the phrase we use and I might have gotten this from John, but that that there is a uh, a living presence that hates our soul, and yes. uh, his name is evil. And to to realize that uh, has so many implications. Not that there's a devil under every bush, but that the reality of it is real. Um, and to understand that can help us to put our story in a context but also uh, to, to help us understand shame better because so much shame comes from the evil one. So talk about shame. There's been this kind of uh, renaissance or maybe for the first time uh, a new discussion, Brene Brown, Kurt Thompson. I, I kind of consider you a patriarch of writing about shame all the way back to the wounded heart and in your teaching uh, in, in your book, The Cry of the Soul. But with all that conversation, uh, just give a couple statements about what you see as important to understand about shame and how it specifically plays out in sexual brokenness and sexual compulsion. Well, and not that many would care, but I, my doctoral training was with what I considered to be the true patriarch, a, a gentleman by the name of Gershon Kaufman. So early on in my work, uh, I had that privilege of um, having shame as a primary focus of the therapeutic process and certainly of understanding the nature of our pathology, but our brokenness. Uh, so really, I think there are two things that I would underline and it's there, you know, Kurt Thompson is just, I think a brilliant writer and one that uh, I read and profit greatly from and Brene Brown absolutely as well. But so the first is that shame is public. Uh, to me, it's a huge, important category. Most of our affect uh, can be public, but is often private, uh, meaning you don't generally feel shame in private uh, unless you imagine somebody seeing you doing what you're doing. I felt shame in the car, but 
only because I was imagining if somebody were to record that and then I'm to see myself in the presence of how others see me. So in that sense, it, it's, it's one of the most God-given uh, emotions. In one sense, what we can say, it's the first emotion we see in Scripture. Um, Adam and Eve experience shame. And in that shame, the natural response is hiding. So if we start with the assumption that almost all, if not all, our efforts to pose, uh, to hide, uh, to portray something about ourselves that's not true is shame-based. So as a public affect, uh, it's what in many ways clothes us to hide uh, what we know will bring us some level of approbation as a result of, of, of that experience. So if that's number one, number two is just what the scripture teaches. Our rage comes out of our shame. So the violence uh, of misogyny uh, isn't just because of some broad hatred of women. Uh, it's far darker than that. Uh, it's, it's a shame-based response to make a woman pay for the vulnerability and the neediness I feel in the presence of. Uh, and so in that sense, I'm going to turn against the one who feels like they have brought or exposed my shame. So <clears throat> if we can hold those two things together, we've got enough to be able to do great work in our marriages, to be able to say every marriage. I don't care how mature it is, has some degree of hiding and some degree of blaming. If we can erupt and disrupt that reality, that erupt meaning bring it to name so that we're actually face to face with our own effort to hide and our own effort to, to scapegoat, um, then we're in a far better position to actually be humbled and, you know, it's just a, it's a theme that you've struck several times in this interview. And I know by your writing in your life, you know, you, you didn't want to be humbled, but you were humbled. Uh, and in that humility, it, you actually found a level of relief, uh, of, of honor and joy that would have come by no other means, right. but in that sense, surrender. So, you know, I mean, the testimony of, of your work and your life is that, it is in rest that we will be redeemed. Uh, that is the image of Isaiah 30, uh, Isaiah 31. You, you would not rest. Therefore, you kept running. Uh, and you will, in one sense, be destroyed by your own efforts to reclaim yourself. I mean, the paradox that so much of our own suffering is because we are our redemption. Uh, we are our own effort to cover ourselves versus being covered, you know, again, in the alien righteousness of Christ, uh, to, to be covered by his uh, uh, claim of us that we are beloved. Um, this is old language, uh, but it is so fundamental to how I addressed, you know, my road rage yesterday um, and how it is that, uh, you know, the day's young. I mean, this is an early morning conversation. My day spans many other conversations today. And will there be failure? Has there been failure? Will there be failure? Of course. So how will I continue to participate in that humility to say, I need help um, and I need people uh, to help because I'm not going to find that 
that help essentially and only uh, in my relationship uh, with Jesus. I need Jesus and whom Jesus appoints to be part of that process. <clears throat> yeah, isn't it so much easier sometimes just to kind of do Jesus and us as if we could have our quiet time and, and read a, a, the new devotion and, and then not have to be vulnerable in community? Uh, you know, as you talked about, and thank you for referencing my story, and I would agree wholeheartedly that the, the humiliation, the humbling, the brokenness, the pain, uh, that that has all been, at this point, a gift. And I, I wouldn't necessarily wish it upon others or choose it for myself, but the gift has been um, not just experiencing the, the fruit of uh, having gone to that place, but everything we're talking about, and, and this is one of the reasons why I came to study with you uh, a couple decades ago, was I was wrestling with the question, how in the world do I connect what's broken in me with this thing called the gospel? Yeah. And, and, and when we do plunge into our story and our brokenness and we make that conscious decision, what you and I have experienced is, is that Jesus and our, and our faith goes from being this add-on or something we believe to something that is as essential as an oxygen tank to a scuba diver. Yes. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's literally a necessity or we can't make it through. And that's my passion is to invite people into their brokenness and even even pornography struggles because it's a window into you know connecting with God and knowing him and reflecting him in a in a way that's otherwise impossible. Well it, it again it's where we we both need to nuance but we both know this is true that um that addictions of any sort uh, at least are a passion um and and in that they are high levels of lust and anger which means the person's in movement, uh, and and it's a movement toward death. Uh, but at least it's movement. Uh, uh, what what I I fear more than that level of brokenness is a person who's living an essentially good life, but ultimately self satisfied. Uh, ultimately, like the life itself, watching Netflix, going out on a weekend, drinking a few beers watching the end of the World Series, um, going on a vacation for a couple weeks a year. You know, the essence of what uh, a, a, a good middle-class life generally holds for the Christian community. Uh, you, you voted for the right candidate. Uh, you send your kids to the right school. You drive the right car. You get it serviced. You, you even floss. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then to go... Uh, you know, good, good on you. Uh, may you live a good life. But I don't see generally in that kind of person the ache, the sense of I'm lost. Uh, I mean, I am lost and I must be found today. Uh, you know, and I can hear at least a, a few a few good Christians saying, yeah, you sound like you're lost and you need Jesus. <laughs> uh, and the answer is I am lost and I need Jesus desperately today. Uh, at least as I'm aging, I'm getting clearer and clearer. Uh, I, I need him. Uh, I need him at levels that uh, feel so deep and intimate. And yet at the other hand, so sweet, so sweet that I, I'd go, Look, if the price of being lost is knowing something of his sweetness, 
then let yourself be a lot more lost than you seem to be. But particularly the population you and I tend to work with already have a pretty keen sense they're lost. Yes. Um, and, and that's where I think the two of us are, are lazy uh, because we'd, we'd prefer to work with the people who are lost than to help those who are not discover that they are. Uh, and I, 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 I take that as, as a compliment to us both. Um, I, I don't have the patience or maturity to work with people who don't know that at some level they are lost. Um, and, and in that, when we are found and further found, because it's not lost to found, it's lost to further heard, further seen. Um, and, and as a result, then we're brought back to that point of going, gosh, if this is what it means to know Jesus today, I, I cannot wait, cannot wait to see what I know of him tomorrow. <clears throat> Salvation is uh, coming to Christ in that way that we talk about getting saved is really just the trailhead of the path that takes us to the door to walk into yeah. the abundant life of restoration. And there's, you know, as, as you, as John, as so many other people say, that there is so much more. Dallas Willard called it a reduced gospel that, that we yeah. settle for. Hey, before we wrap up, because I know that your time is limited, I want to come back to, to one thing and then a final question. You said that shame is a God-given capacity, and, and um, I want to make sure I understand that, that it's a capacity that God gave us, but that God is not the one who shames us. Jesus well, on the cross is not shaming us. No. Uh, in, in, in one sense, yes, you're, you're, you're cutting into the complexity theologically of, you know, is shame, uh, shame is primarily used by evil, right, to, to shut us down, silence us, uh, and separate, divide us uh, internally and externally. But, but Adam and Eve felt shame, even before the first encounter with God. And I think in that sense, shame is an awareness of something within us that is destitute, that, that in that, in, in their sin, they knew at levels that ontologically we can't even begin to name because we were ne we have never been pure. We have never, in one sense, been fully righteous in and of ourselves in the way that Adam and Eve were. So we have no clue what the transition is between utter holy righteousness and our own condition. We know what Adam and Eve felt after, but we don't know what that transitional experience would be. We can only suppose. Um, so at least to start and to say, look, their experience of shame awakened in them a level of how empty and destitute and violent and dangerous they are and were. Uh, and so in that light, um, shame was a gift as to, you know, an engine without oil seizes and shuts down. Uh, that, that's not how the designer built the engine to seize. He built the engine to run with oil, but the absence of oil brings about a byproduct and that byproduct is indeed i would call a gift of god um but now it's also the tip of the spear for what evil uses to actually separate so when we hold that complexity then what we can do is to be able to say well 
Jesus took our shame. I mean, that can be said so quickly, but to let ourselves have that awareness that that he took our shame, he took it fully, which means he became shame on our behalf. That means that we as even post-fall, again, in a way that Adam and Eve didn't have the privilege, um, they, they had the privilege of having shame engaged. They didn't have the privilege of having shame consumed by the one who is our creator and author. So in that sense, what I would say is shame today, our experience of shame today is always contrary to what God desires. That's such a helpful clarification. Thank you. So final question, and neither one of us are, are guys that say, here's the, the three or five steps, but you wrote a book called The Healing Path, and you wrote a book called To Be Told, and so many others that spell out how to engage this process. For that man who is standing around the edge of their story and their brokenness, just wanting to, to modify their behavior, what are a couple of practical macro things to do to get started? Well, I, I, one of the first things would be write your story. Uh, and you can do that on so many levels. You can do a kind of, you know, uh, in, in, in the year 1970, I experienced this sexual event. Uh, in 72, I did, you know, you can do a bit of a, you know, a lifespan orientation of, of, of your own sexual wars, uh, just by having it even on, you know, a decadal let alone year by year, you begin to name certain things. So we're back to this word name. You, you can take a story and write six to 800 words, just a story, one story of where you knew sexual violation, uh, where you knew something, uh, someone or something did harm to you. Um, uh, it, 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 what we find is, uh, and the research particularly about writing is when you put things onto paper, something changes in your brain. Right. So that naming process is huge. A second factor is it needs to be read. Uh, it, it, it's not just writing, but it needs to be read to at least one other human being. Uh, and I would prefer that human being be you. Uh, a person who has done has a, a calling to enter into brokenness uh, with wisdom, with strength, uh, with audacity, uh, and yet confidence that comes not by a commitment to a methodology, but to the goodness of the one who created us. So you need to read with another. And that sense of third, you need the engagement of the story you've not told. So when we tell a story, there's almost always, inevitably, the unsaid. Uh, and as we begin to explore what was said, but also the unsaid, uh, we begin to get a clearer picture uh, of our lives. First of all, that's a huge investment, uh, time, money, but far more, it's the, the fear of what I'll discover. Uh, and this is where, uh, as much as, all of us are afraid to be discovered of how bad we are. Uh, the more significant fear uh, is, is really how beautiful we are. Uh, and that, for the person on the exterior, just on the border of thinking about all this, has to be viewed to some degree as a, a kind of therapeutic bullshit, uh, where you just go, uh, oh, how interesting. No, that's not me. 
but the reality is we are all far more afraid of facing the beauty within us than indeed the brokenness. So inviting people to hold. Now, you were written to reveal the very name, the very, very being of God. Now, will you let us explore in your life how your life was uniquely meant to reveal something of the goodness of God? Uh, I think becomes um, beautifully terrifying, uh, uh, humbling, but holy. Uh, and that's, that's the task. D do you know that humility will take you to a holiness of joy? Well, if so, uh, then whatever you're doing, I don't care if you're a multimillionaire or you literally sweep floors, uh, there is such a life ahead for you that you couldn't even begin to imagine. Come join us. Amen. <laughs> Dan, thank you for your uh, for your time and your heart uh, conversation with you and hearing you speak is always incredibly stimulating and provocative and I'm going to have to go and unpack this and spend some time in solitude. Uh, this is going to encourage so many people. Thank you uh, and we'll talk again. Michael, of course. Love being with you. Again, thank you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. <laughs>